From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. On January 6th, Jason Crow thought he'd have to fight his way out of the Capitol as Trump supporters stormed in. It's partly why the Aurora congressman backs a lawsuit to keep Trump off Colorado's ballot. Voters should always decide our election. That's how our system works. The challenge that we're facing is when you have the former president who is using violence, intimidation, fraud, and lies to actually thwart the will of the voters. I'll press him on the legality. Then Kaiser Permanente, which has half a million patients in Colorado, is facing a strike. CPR's Matt Bloom lays out what workers want and what a strike could mean for those in Kaiser's care. And later, Denver's new mayor wants to find permanent housing for a thousand people. But are people actually on a pathway out of homelessness? Colorado Public Radio is committed to covering emerging stories and delving deeply into the details of what's happening now without fear, hype, or compromise. This vital news coverage, as well as CPR's essential music service, is made possible through community support. If you're a member of CPR, thank you. Your support ensures impartial journalism, statewide coverage, and an informed public. Help sustain this community resource. Donate at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The day after supporters of President Trump stormed the U.S. Capitol, we heard from a congressman who was inside. Here's Jason Crow of Aurora, January 7th, 2021. The rioters moved so quickly into the Capitol that we ended up getting trapped. Uh, I I knew that uh, things uh, were um, getting really bad when uh, instead of escorting us out, the Capitol Police actually locked all of the doors and started to barricade the doors and windows with furniture. Uh, And um, they confirmed to me that, uh, indeed, we were trapped and surrounded by the mob. Uh, We we heard gunshots starting to go off outside of the chamber. uh, And uh, I was preparing to fight, uh, frankly, uh, getting ready to uh, fight our way out if necessary. Well, now a lawsuit in Colorado argues Donald Trump is ineligible for the 2024 presidential ballot here because of his role in the riot. Crow, a Democrat, is not a party to this suit, but is watching with interest and has said he might be called as a witness. And Congressman, welcome to the program. Good to be with you, Ryan. Before we get to the lawsuit, I wonder what comes to mind when you hear yourself from the day after. Well, it wasn't that long ago. You know, it seems a long time ago to a lot of folks, given everything that's happened in our politics and in the world and our country in the two years. But, you know, it's still pretty fresh in my memory. And I don't think we can forget how brutal that day was. An officer was killed. Several others have taken their lives due to the trauma of that day. Over 150 police officers were brutally beaten and still hold uh, invisible, invisible scars. It was certainly a tough day. And I I think we have to remember that our system can be very fragile at times. To the lawsuit, it would ban Trump from Colorado's ballot under a clause of the 14th Amendment, saying any official who has engaged in an insurrection or rebellion against the United States cannot hold public office. There will ostensibly be a hearing in October. Do you agree this clause, which dates back to about Reconstruction, applies to the former president and and why? I do think so, Ryan. You know, voters should always decide our elections. That's how our system works. The challenge that we're facing right now is when you have the former president, President Trump, 
who is using violence, intimidation, fraud, and lies to actually thwart the will of the voters. And when that happens, when you have somebody who's trying to thwart the will of the voters and go around our system and to rig our system, the Constitution actually has a provision to deal with that. Uh, and our laws have a provision to deal with that. It is illegal. It is unconstitutional. Uh, and that's the provision that we're invoking in this instance and with this lawsuit focused on. Well, it's interesting. You say their voters should always determine, but not in this case. I guess this is an asterisk for you. No, that's not at all what I'm saying. Voters uh, can and should always determine. What I'm saying is that there are instances where candidates try to rig the system and they try to use violence and intimidation and rebellion or insurrection in the case of the former president to actually thwart the will of the voters. So what these provisions are doing is actually protecting the voting process, protecting the will of the voters, prohibiting people who are trying to go around that system from doing so. There's all sorts of evidence that President Trump tried to thwart the will of the voters in the 2020 election. What is the evidence that he's doing that now? If you look at the pressure that he's putting on elected officials around the country, you know, he continues to keep up with the lies. He continues to uh, intimidate folks. And you look at the cases that are going on around the country, uh, including the Atlanta case. Uh, he is using his various platforms to intimidate and threaten and actually incite violence against those prosecutors, against the jurors, against uh, the judges. This is not a well man. He's a man who will do anything, including the use of violence and intimidation to get what he wants. And he certainly continued to do that since January 6th. So, you know, before January 6th, during January 6th and since January 6th, he has not changed uh, his approach, nor should we expect him to do so because he's proven to us who he is. This clause of the 14th Amendment dates back, uh, as I said, to about the Civil War. But federal and state laws offer little to no guidance on how to proceed. So the provision bars those it applies to from serving, but not necessarily from running for office, raising the murky question of whether it's legal to keep Trump's name off of ballots. Is that a distinction without a difference in your mind? Well, there's no... um... I'm sorry, I'm in the airport here, flying back to Colorado. But, uh, you know, there's no doubt that in my time in Congress here, we have dealt with unprecedented situation after unprecedented situation that typifies my time in Congress, that, you know, so much of what we see is new and novel. But, you know, that that's not unusual in our court system. There is precedent, and we rely on precedent. There's this concept of stare decisis. But there's certainly no shortage of cases of first impression, as they're called in the legal system. And uh, that's what we're dealing with here. We're in uncharted territory constitutionally and legally, and we're going to have to uh, sort that out. And the courts are going to have to interpret that. And that's why you rely on history. That's why you draw on the record at the time to figure out what the intent of these provisions were. So you think that there might be some new legal precedent set here uh, under what you see as extraordinary circumstances. Earlier, you, you called uh, Mr. Trump not a well man. Do you want to expound on what you mean by that? Sure. I, I think he's demonstrated uh, the use of violence uh, to get what he wants. I, I think that he's, you know, um, uh, demonstrated the fact that he has you know, narcissistic tendencies, sociopathic tendencies. Uh, and uh, that's not somebody who should be trusted, certainly in the highest, the highest office of our land, not to mention to you know, be a dog sitter for that matter. And I don't mean to say this in jest, by the way. I just think that he's not somebody who can be trusted in any capacity, in any position of trust, let alone our, our most entrusted, coveted positions in our government. 
Uh, so I, I don't think he's well, no. And yet he is by far the Republican frontrunner and a, a core of Americans swear by him. What do you make of that? How do you square that? What are you potentially missing? Well, I think the answer, like all of these things, is complicated. I don't think I'm missing anything. I think people are are motivated by a variety of things. You know, our our nation is complicated. Uh, Americans are complicated. There's fear. There's uncertainty. People are frustrated by the lack of upward mobility. The American dream is out of touch for a lot of Americans. You know, like I've said all along, the American dream is on from, you know, a chicken in every pot and a car in every port, you know, back in the the mid 20th century to now, you know, I, I define it as that every successive generation should be able to do better than the last. And right now, a lot of Americans are looking and saying, hey, you know, my children and grandchildren probably will not be doing better than me uh, on this current trajectory. So that's frustrating. And, you know, the, the answer, of course, is not the brand of, of nationalism and blood and soil populism and isolationism that Donald Trump presents to us and, and the um, the division, right? He is about dividing us against each other and presenting, um, you know, the other as the problem. The solution, of course, is to govern, to actually address those root cause issues, inequity and lack of fairness in our system and how it's not working for folks. So that's really the distinctions here. But there's also a lot of, you know, racism still endemic in our system. Uh, he has no doubt tried to jumpstart white nationalism and white supremacy, right? The white supremacist movement and anti-Semitism in America is surging right now in no small part due to the rhetoric uh, and the mobilization by Donald Trump. Uh, Back to the notion of the court case in Colorado. You know, there's also this argument that while Trump was impeached by the House for his alleged role in January 6th, he was acquitted by the Senate and so legally doesn't bear responsibility. That, that to some extent there has already been a trial. Is this double jeopardy? No, those are different cases, different mechanisms, right? The, an impeachment is a process to remove a sitting president uh, or, or you know, someone who was president, prevent them from running again via the impeachment process. Section 3 of, of um, you know, Amendment 14 is, is a different process. So there, there are different situations. And, uh, you know, the acquittal in the Senate, I long said, uh, was, I think, the wrong answer. We did our job. I did my job. I thought and continued to think that Donald Trump is a is a danger to the American people. Uh, and as, a, as an impeachment prosecutor in the first impeachment trial, I made that case. The Republican-controlled Senate disagreed with me, and, and they did not ultimately vote to convict him. By the way, he was impeached, right? So they did not convict him. And the conviction and the removal is what's done in the United States Senate. But the impeachment happened in the House, and he's now a twice-impeached president. Trump's impeachment for his role in the January 6th insurrection indeed was his second. Almost a year prior, he was impeached by a democratically controlled House for his part in withholding military aid to Ukraine in exchange for damaging information on now President Biden's son. And in that trial, you were one of seven managers who brought articles of impeachment to the Senate. I wonder if you use it as any sort of barometer how popular Trump is among some. Um, a barometer of what Democrats are doing and saying and how that's resonating. Does that make sense? In other words, do you look at Trump's support and say what message is in it for my party? Yeah, there's no doubt that it, it forces some introspection and, and some hard discussion. You know, why uh, are Democrats not reaching vast swaths of the country? You know, uh, there's a huge urban-rural divide right now in America. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, Democrats can do amazing and great things for rural America. In fact, we did, you know, just last year, we passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is going to bring tens of billions of dollars of broadband expansion to rural America. It's going to increase the health care coverage to rural America. It's going to reduce the costs of insulin uh, in rural America. We passed the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which is going to help us build out a, a modern electrical grid, including for rural America. So uh, we, we need to do better about getting that out. And, and we will, right? We are going to continue to talk about that and explain we are going to do the work, we are going to govern, uh, and we're going to make life better for you. Although Mr. Biden's had three years to make that argument, and I, I imagine it would be much more complicated to make that argument if the government were shut down, Congressman. Well, I don't know the connection between the two. A government shutdown is not the right answer in, in any event, right? It costs the taxpayers tens of billions of dollars. Uh, it sets us behind uh, addressing things like we need to, to address on um, countering China uh, and Asian Pacific, bringing our jobs back, implementing the Chips and Science Act, which will reonshore advanced manufacturing in America. That's, again, another bill that we passed last Congress. So it, it's not the answer. You know, governing by dysfunction, which is what the Republican-controlled House continues to do, it's not the answer to any of this. Uh, and in fact, many of my Republican friends, of which there are many uh, in the House, I have a lot of uh, good buddies uh, are saying the same thing. They're, they're actually casting aspersions of their own colleagues now for this dysfunction, and they're not wrong. So, you know, we need to get beyond this current dysfunction and, and pass a bill to fund the government. And I'm going to continue to work to do that. Thank you so much for your time. Safe travels. Thank you very much. It's always good to be with you. Jason Crow represents Colorado's 6th District, which includes Aurora. We'll be right back as Kaiser Permanente workers eye what could be the largest healthcare strike in U.S. history. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The Lookout is Colorado Public Radio's free daily newsletter. Get the latest Colorado news from CPR and other sources around the region delivered straight to your inbox. Sign up at CPR.org. The nation could see the largest strike of healthcare workers in its history. Kaiser Permanente employs more than 80,000 people across the U.S. The provider is locked in contract negotiations with the union that represents much of its technical and support staff. Without an agreement, labor leaders say there will be a strike October 4th. CPR's Matt Bloom is following this. Hi, Matt. Hey, Ryan. How many Kaiser workers are in Colorado specifically, and uh, what do they want from a new contract? Well, there's a lot. The Colorado chapter of Service Employees International Union represents about 3,000 Kaiser nurses, lab techs, and call center staffers, among others. Doctors and some nurses are not part of the union, and they wouldn't be involved in a potential walkout. Now, the main sticking points here are wage hikes, hiring practices, and changes to bonus policies. In terms of pay, the union hopes to win an across-the-board 7% annual raise to keep up with Colorado's high cost of living. Kaiser, though, wants a lower increase, around 3%. It says it already offers wages above market norms. Kaiser claims anything more would raise prices for patients. Aside from money, the union told me staffing shortages have reached crisis levels in many departments, and they want Kaiser to feel more urgency when it comes to filling vacancies. Kaiser says it's working to improve recruiting. Workers have also accused Kaiser of unfair labor practices during negotiations, such as 
failing to show up for meetings and withholding financial information. Kaiser denies it's broken any laws, though. The current contract for these workers expires at the end of this week. Has there been much progress on a deal to this point? It doesn't appear so. The two sides met last week and bargaining did not result in a new contract just yet. The union filed a notice to strike for three days starting next week, which they hope will put some pressure on their bosses. That doesn't guarantee a strike will happen, though. They could hash out a deal last minute in the next few days. But tensions are definitely high and there's a lot at stake. In other recent nurse strikes across the country, hospital systems spent millions on temporary staff to keep services up and running. Kaiser would likely need to do the same. Meanwhile, workers would be without a paycheck until a deal is reached. So there's just a lot of pressure to get something done. If the end of September comes and there isn't a deal, what would the effect be on patients? Yeah, it's hard to say for sure since patient needs vary so much. Uh SEIU represents a huge variety of workers. In addition to many Kaiser nurses, its membership includes patient schedulers, billing staff, pharmacy techs, couriers, transportation staff, the list goes on. So maybe that prescription you need would take a little longer to fill. The union says it could become harder to get a specialist appointment set up. Kaiser has about half a million patients in Colorado alone. So that's a lot and a disruption could have pretty widespread effects. And there are a lot of things that could get backed up if a strike were to last a long time. For its part, Kaiser says it would do anything it needs to in order to keep services up and running smoothly. That would probably come in the form of those temporary hires I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. How are workers getting their message out? There have been some demonstrations outside of major hospitals and locations in Colorado. I covered one in August where staff had set up tents and chairs near a hospital entrance to hand out information and buttons to patients. That was actually the setting of their strike authorization vote, too. They're hopeful that message is going to resonate with people because inflation impacts everybody. Worker rights have gotten a lot of attention nationally. United Auto Workers are out on the picket line battling for a new deal. Unions overall have seen an increase in public support since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. I talked about that with James Walsh. He's a political science professor at the University of Colorado, Denver, and he studies labor movements. Workers feel more emboldened not to cave. There's a new consciousness um, in this country, and and, um, it's, it's only growing. And apparently reflected then in this Kaiser strike, could we see any political or legal interventions if a strike were to drag on for a while? It's possible that seems unlikely, at least for now. Things would need to get pretty bad. Governor Jared Polis and the state's Labor Department could intervene if both sides requested help. In general, though, state authorities have very little control over labor disputes. That said, it wouldn't be surprising to see politicians like Polis and President Joe Biden address a strike if one were to happen. Healthcare is obviously a huge deal for voters, especially older folks. But again, there are still a few days before we're anywhere near a full walkout. Right. Our eyes are on October 4th, Matt. Your eyes, certainly. (laughs) Thanks for being with us. CPR's Matt Bloom covering the labor dispute at Kaiser Permanente. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado Matters continues shortly with the trial of two officers in the death of Elijah McClain in Aurora. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Hey, it's Rebecca. And Luis, the hosts of Music Blocks. A podcast about your favorite sounds, how they're created, and what makes them special. 
we're returning for season three. And this season, we're talking about instrument families. The different instrument families share connections that span the globe. In different cultures. In different genres. The new season of the CPR podcast, Music Blocks. Find it wherever you listen. Trial resumes tomorrow for two Aurora police officers charged in the death of Elijah McClain. Randy Rodima and Jason Rosenblatt provided backup when law enforcement stopped McClain on the street in August of 2019 and violently subdued him. He was later given the sedative ketamine by paramedics and died. Testimony began last week after opening statements Wednesday, some of which we'll play you now. First off, for the prosecution, John Bungie. You will hear no evidence in this case, none, that Elijah McClain did something criminal that night, that he was about to engage in criminal activity. He was just walking home. And you'll hear that the defendants grabbed Elijah McClain merely because he looked to them suspicious. And in the 18 minutes and two seconds that followed, in which Elijah McClain was in the custody of Mr. Odima and Mr. Rosenblatt, you'll hear that Mr. McClain, Elijah, a 23-year-old healthy man, young man, just walking down the street, became a casualty of the very people who had sworn to protect him. In defense of the cops, attorney Harvey Steinberg said they were between a rock and a hard place. Damned if you do, because we're here. Damned if you don't, because God forbid, you just say, I'm not going to do anything. And an individual who looks like that in a high crime area at 1030 at night goes out and commits a crime, and you know what's happening. Aurora police did nothing. They got a 911 call and they just drove by. And so-and-so is hurt, so-and-so is dead, so-and-so is damaged. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Well, now let's get caught up on the trial as a whole, which the nation is watching. CPR justice reporter Tony Gorman joins us with a sense of things from jury selection onward. Hi, Tony. Hi, Ryan. Jury selection started nearly two weeks ago, and as I said, the trial officially started just last Wednesday. What took so long? Seating any jury takes some time. Prosecution and defense teams can dismiss uh, potential jurors without reason with what are known as peremptory challenges. Both sides had 10 of those challenges, but this is a high-profile case, and there has been a lot of media coverage about the death of Elijah McClain. They started with 250 people and had to whittle that down. Yes, to 14, the 12-member jury and two alternates. They asked questions about interactions with law enforcement and whether they watched the news about McLean. Uh, They also dismissed people with health issues or who are primary caregivers. What can you tell us about the jury itself, the people who were chosen? So seven men, seven women, there are some Latinos, Latinas, and an Asian man, but there are no jurors that I know of who identify as black. 
uh, the makeup doesn't line up very well with the demographics from where the jury pool was called from. Of the people who reside in Adams County, 46% are white and 42% are Latino, and this jury is majority white. Okay, so that jury is seated. Next come opening statements. Did those give you a sense of how each side is going to argue their case? Well, the defense, which represents the officers, it sounds like they are going to point some fingers at each other. Uh, I think they're going to say it wasn't my officer. My officer didn't put McLean in a carotid hole. My officer didn't administer ketamine, which is what an amended autopsy said killed McLean. They are going to talk about the politics of 2020 and the protests that gripped the nation after he died. The case involving his death in 2019 was initially closed. Yes, and the officers involved in stopping him on the sidewalk were back to work. When George Floyd was uh, murdered, people took to the streets in protest. Uh, McLean's name was invoked as part of the reform movement against police brutality. This case was reopened by Governor Polis, and here we are today. Uh, So I think the defense attorneys will say politics is the reason we're here, not because our officers did anything wrong. How do you think the prosecution will respond? Well, in the opening statements, prosecutors said nothing about politics. They say these officers mishandled the arrest. From the beginning of the encounter, the prosecution says the officers ignored multiple calls for help from McLean. He said he couldn't breathe seven times. When they had him restrained, they were sitting on him and he was throwing up into a face mask and they ignored that. And remember, McLean had not done anything wrong. Police were responding to a call about a suspicious person and he was walking home from a gas station wearing a hoodie, a face mask and headphones. We now know that he wore the face mask. Uh, This was before the pandemic because he was often cold. Uh, The first witnesses have been called in the prosecution's case. Tony, who has testified so far? An Aurora police lieutenant who organizes reviews and catalogs the video that comes from Aurora police body cameras. Also, an audio and video specialist from California named David Notowitz. There was a lot of arguing about the so-called master sync, which is an enhanced video of the body cameras worn by police. The defense wants to know exactly how he enhanced the footage. The prosecutors say the jury will see the originals and the enhanced version. That fight went on more than three hours Thursday. On Friday, the prosecution did play the body camera footage of the three officers charged who were on scene the night that Elijah McClain was stopped. All right, who else? They also questioned two medical doctors, the attending physician for McClain when he was in the ICU at UC Health, where he was pronounced dead, and an international lung and asthma pulmonologist who filed both an initial and supplemental report on McLean's death in a grand jury investigation in 2021. Dr. David Buther reviewed McLean's extensive medical records, images, x-rays, and police camera footage. So Dr. Buther studied all of these aspects of McLean's death and his encounter with police. Did we learn anything new about the arrest from his testimony? He said that even before ketamine, a sedative, was administered, McLean was at risk of being in medical distress. In my medical opinion, to a reasonable degree of medical certainty, he aspirated before the ketamine. 
Um, that is not something I can uh, give you 100% proof about, but the rationale for this is that he had this mask on, and we know that he vomited uh, with the mask on. Why do you say you know that? We know that because I looked at the mask. The mask had food particles, stomach contents in it. So, so there's direct evidence that, that he vomited while the mask was still on. It was inside of the mask around the nose and the mouth, and quite a bit of it. That's one of the reasons I, I wanted to look at the mask. In addition to that, we have other evidence to support aspiration later on. But in terms of before ketamine, we know that he vomited while the mask was on. We know he was breathing really heavily. We see it on the video. I see it on the video. He's breathing heavily with the mask on and then had the vomiting. That's a very high-risk situation. And then we have later episodes of continued vomiting. So the more you vomit, the higher the risk of aspiration. Uh, and then the other risk is that if you can't lean forward, sit upright, take a big breath in and cough, you can't clear this stuff out of your airways. And so um, it, it can be higher risk of settling down. Buther said that McLean might have survived the dosage of ketamine if he hadn't aspirated or if he could have breathed more easily. Tony, what can you tell us as the trial resumes tomorrow? Well, the defense will continue its cross-examination of Dr. Buther. They only got to ask about an hour's worth of questions on Friday. Harvey Steinberg, defense attorney for Officer Jason Rosenblatt, was pressing the doctor about his opinion as to what caused McLean's death. Thanks so much, Tony. Thank you. CPR's Tony Gorman, who's on our justice team. Testimony resumes tomorrow indeed in the trial of two Aurora police officers charged in the death of Elijah McLean in 2019. Before we go, a few words from McLean's mother, Shanine, who's been in the courtroom and spoke with reporters just outside. They didn't try to save his life. They did everything they could to harm him, to hurt him, to brutalize him, to terrorize him, and then to cover it up. Mm -hmm. I said I wasn't going to say nothing until this was over, but damn that. The truth is what's real. Truth is what's real. And all this other stuff that they trying to do, parade around her like they they deserve to breathe. <laughs> no, they don't. None of them deserve to breathe. But it's left in the hands of a jury that are not of my peers. And a judge who didn't come from my neighborhood. Special thanks to the Associated Press's Colleen Slevin for that sound. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Denver now tracks how many people experiencing homelessness have been moved off the streets. It's part of Mayor Mike Johnston's House 1000 campaign. But is it a true measure of a permanent solution? CPR's Alejandro Alonso Galva spoke with Denverites Kyle Harris about the city's new dashboard, starting with what it takes to make it onto the list. When he came out with this promise, I'm going to house a thousand people by the end of the year. There's a lot of talk of locks and keys and that sort of stuff, having an address you can send things to. The actual list of housing outcomes he's describing, they're pretty broad. So they include things like motel rooms. They include things like, hey, uh, your family is going to welcome you back to their home. Um, they include things like pallet shelters, tiny homes. And 
They also include, and this is probably the the most controversial part as I talk to homeless service providers, group shelters. So things like the Denver Rescue Mission or Crossroads. So your traditional homeless shelter that's meant for a short-term emergency, not long-term housing. And then you reported that a person is also considered housed, according to this House 1000 campaign, if they've been housed for 14 days. Exactly. So there's a question that we have to ask when we say, okay, we've given someone a housing outcome. Well, how long does that outcome have to last, right? And, you know, does it mean six months? Does it mean a year? For me, I feel fairly confident I'll have a home for the foreseeable future. According to the administration, someone just has to stay inside for 14 days. If the 15th day comes around and they say, hey, I want to move back to the streets, you know, this housing situation isn't working, I was evicted, whatever – According to these metrics, that's still a success story for the administration. And it still counts to the 1,000 housed people, even though they might not be housed anymore. That's correct. And I think that's particularly concerning for people who are hoping that Mike Johnston ends the encampments that are throughout the city, right? Like the hope is that the 1,000 people housed will not return. And in fact, this is something he's talked about quite a bit himself. The idea that 15 days after being in, say, a traditional group homeless shelter, you're on the streets, that's actually fairly conventional. So it raises a really big question about whether his goal to, quote unquote, decommission encampments, to get rid of them, to disband them permanently, can work if people are not more permanently housed or at least inside for the long term. And these housing outcomes definitions, they differ from the Department of Housing and Urban Development, correct? Exactly. So HUD has this idea of literal homelessness. People living in group shelters are literally homeless. People living in micro communities, in tiny homes, in motel rooms, all of those are examples of people who are still literally homeless. So the thousand people Johnston's talking about here, many of them are actually going to still be literally homeless, even as he tallies them as part of the thousand people housed. You've reported that the administration is going to spend $48 million building 1,395 units to house people. What what do those units look like? Do they match this literal homelessness definition by HUD? What does that look like? And it just kind of feels like where's all this $48 million going if it's not actually housing 1,000 people? It's a great question. So Mayor Johnston has early on in his administration acknowledged we're in a state of emergency regarding homelessness. So people, you know, people at the Colorado Coalition of the Homeless have told me that living in a tiny home community, a safe occupancy site, a motel is definitely safer than living on the streets. So Johnston's trying to address an immediate emergency. How that matches with the federal definition of literal homelessness, just because you're not in the emergency of street-level homelessness does not mean that you're not still homeless. It doesn't mean that you have the stability that comes with renting or owning. It doesn't mean that you necessarily have a place to to be after, say, 15 days. So, yeah, I mean, the the definition Johnston is using for housing and the kind of housing, quote-unquote housing, uh, really sheltered, temporary shelter that he's creating is not uh, hitting the bar of HUD. Yeah. And you spoke to a homelessness advocate who called the numbers and the definitions misleading. Can you get into this $48 million being spent by the city to build housing units? What do those units look like? Will they actually fully house people? Are they tiny homes? So Mayor Johnson's talked about this as an all of the above approach. So he is trying to find units that could look like motel conversions into temporary individual shelter or long term into permanent housing. 
Uh, it could look like pallet homes, tiny homes. It could look like any of those sorts of things where someone can stay off the street. So one of the things that we talked about with the mayor early on was, well, okay, so you're going to build tiny homes. Are people just going to stay in those homes? And the idea is that they'll transition somewhere else into a more permanent type of housing. One of the issues that we're dealing with in Denver is that type of housing is very scarce. Um, the former head of the Denver Housing Authority recently told me we're 60,000 units behind what we need in terms of income-restricted housing in the Denver area. So someone's living in a tiny home hoping they're going to move into this apartment. The question really is, where's the apartment? I should say another thing that that money's going to will be leasing units for people in pre-existing market rate apartments. Now, how successful that is uh, has yet to be seen. And will this $48 million include any kind of wraparound services, things like finding a job, therapy, addiction services, anything like that? The city will be funding some of those programs. Uh, certainly the tiny home communities, the converted motels, those come with uh, the promise of some sort of wraparound services. So yeah, those will include addiction treatment, mental health treatment. They will include all sorts of ways of trying to help someone get stabilized. I think the big question at this point is, what's next? We get to December 31st. Has he housed 1,000 people by his standards? Has he housed 1,000 people by HUD standards or federal government standards? Are people actually on a pathway out of homelessness? And for folks who are struggling on the streets who are trying to get by, the answer to that question is life or death in some cases. So he certainly has his work cut out for him. He has promised, in fact, to end homelessness in four years. That was a campaign promise. That's going to be pretty hard. Okay. Kyle, thank you so much. CPR's Alejandro Alonso Galva speaking with Denverites Kyle Harris about Denver's added efforts to address homelessness. As of last week, 101 people are no longer living on the streets based on the city's criteria. Of those, five have obtained permanent housing and 35 have rental units. You can read Kyle's reporting at denverite.com. We'll be right back with success for Osiris Rex. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's not certain who first put ham, onion, and bell peppers in the Denver omelet. It may have adapted from a Chinese dish called egg fu young that railroad workers might have adapted with ingredients easily found in the West. But a plaque in downtown Denver claims the omelet was, quote, developed to mask the stale flavor of eggs shipped by wagon freight. What's not in question is that the omelet first appeared as the filling in the Denver sandwich. In 1907, at least two Denver restaurants and one hotel declared they invented it. Portable, tasty, and packed with protein, the Denver sandwich was enjoyed by people from coast to coast and became extremely popular. However, by 1980, more and more diners were choosing the dish with cheese minus bread. It's hard to find a Denver sandwich on menus today, but the Denver omelet is still a low-carb favorite. A Colorado postcard from CPR with support from Mint's Law Firm. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Seven years after it launched, the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft made history Sunday, flying back by Earth and dropping off a little present. We are touchdown. I repeat, EDL. 
SRC has touchdown. And touchdown of the Osiris Rex sample return capsule. A journey of a billion miles to asteroid Bennu and back has come to an end, marking America's first sample return mission of its kind and opening a time capsule to our ancient solar system. NASA's live feed as OSIRIS-REx jettisoned some precious cargo, which parachuted safely to the ground in Utah. It contains samples of an asteroid, which, as you just heard, scientists hope will reveal more about the origins of the solar system. Sandy Friend is the mission program manager at Lockheed Martin in Littleton. We spoke earlier this month about the complexity of first gathering the sample. So we had to line up exactly with Bennu's rotation for our touch-and-go or tag, which was sample collection. It's just a matter of seconds that we're actually in contact with the asteroid. The entire event is on the order of hours because you need to leave orbit, descend to the surface, touch the surface to get the sample, and then back away. There's a lot of preparation that goes into doing anything in deep spaceflight and especially doing something never done before. The capsule containing the sample will be opened at the Johnson Space Center in a special clean room. The earliest that could happen is tomorrow. Meanwhile, OSIRIS-REx continues its mission. It's now headed to get samples from another asteroid, which it will reach in 2029. The moon is about to get very busy. The U.S. wants astronauts living and working there within the next few years. Other countries and private industry aren't far behind. It's a new space race for science and for profit, and somehow everybody's got to communicate. A new Colorado company hopes to help. Crescent Space Services is a subsidiary of Lockheed Martin's space. Joe Landon is its CEO, and we spoke in May. There has been talk about returning to the moon for a while. Why is now the crucial time? Like, what's it going to look like up there? Sure, yeah. I think what we've seen over the last several years is this big global effort to go explore and uh, and, and even develop the moon. And the U.S. has the Artemis program, which also has um, brought in international partners from around the world. So we've seen sustained and significant investment in lunar exploration that is, that is driving this wave that we're seeing of, of uh, missions going to the moon. And is the idea that the moon holds something we want besides experience and information? Yeah, a couple things. I think experience and information are are, are really big, big factors. The science and how we understand the Earth is really important, and the moon is a key factor for understanding the Earth and also the rest of the solar system and, and the universe. So we want to go and explore and understand how the moon formed and what's there. But then you mentioned experience, like being able to go explore further in the solar system to Mars and, and maybe even places beyond that. Going to the moon first and learning and developing the technology and, and systems that we need to go further, the moon is really a key uh, starting point for that. Okay, so that's all the potential. And then we know that there will be lots of people and lots of companies and lots of nations there. If there isn't good communication and coordination, what sorts of calamity could occur? Yeah, it's, it's hard to do anything without communication. I think, you know, even just to bring it to something we, we all understand, you know, when you move into a new apartment, yeah. the first thing you do, it, what is it? it? It's go set up your cable, your your internet, <laughs> and your power, right? So this that, is the lunar equivalent right? of a new apartment. Okay. <laughs> That's right, right. We need infrastructure, right? So if you go to the moon, you're need, going to need to have these key services, the same types of things you'd need here. And communication 
communications, like being able to talk to home and to talk to each other on the moon is really one of the first things that, that you'll need. And is it about avoiding calamity of some kind of collision or w- what is the benefit of coordination? Sure. So I think if we, we think ahead to, you know, maybe hundreds of, of different missions on the moon at, at any given time over the next 10 years, some wow. of those missions will be robots with, with uh, people controlling them from Earth. Some of them might be autonomous, operating, you know, um, with some planned uh, planned programming, and others might have human crews on board. So we want to ensure the safety, certainly of those humans, but also these uh, these other systems that are up there so that we're not interfering with each other or running into each other. And there's a lot of money in this. That's right. So these are investments to protect. And your answer to this communication issue is to have satellites orbiting the moon, too, I think. Tell us about them, how they'll work. Sure. So we'll have, a, you know, Crescent, we'll be building a network. It's called Parsec. And it starts with two satellites orbiting the moon so that wherever you are on the lunar surface, you can connect to one of those satellites. Think of them as, as like a really tall cell phone tower huh. uh, for the moon so that you can use that satellite to then connect back to Earth or to other other systems or people uh, on the lunar surface. Now, why do we need lunar satellites? Couldn't you just connect to the ones orbiting Earth? Are those just too far away? Yeah, they're too far away. Okay. And, and the satellites around Earth... Uh, just about all of those are, are facing the Earth. So the moon is, is quite quite a far distance away from the Earth. And uh, we need specialized satellites there, really built for the purpose of connecting to people and systems on the moon. Do you have the far side of the moon problem with satellites around the moon? No, that probably solves yeah, the issue. Yeah, so, so that's, that's, a, that's a great point. The, having satellites around the moon solves that problem. So the moon, the way it works is it's tidally locked to Earth. So the, the side of the moon that you see that when you look up at night yeah. is always the same side of the moon. And the part that's facing away from the moon or from the earth is always the same side facing away from the earth. So if you send a person or a robot to that far side of the moon, there's no uh, line. You can't see the earth. So a radio signal won't be able to reach the earth from that far side. So you need to go up to a satellite and then connect back to earth. Who's in charge? What's the common Mm -hmm. language? And, you know, like, why is it Crescent? Why isn't it a Chinese company or a Japanese company or a European company? Yeah, no, this is an area where uh, we're still figuring out the rules. I think that there are some common standards and some analogies we can use for Earth, like the law of the sea or or, or some of these, um, how we coordinate satellites around Earth. We're taking lessons from that. Um, I think we actually have to go out there and try to do some some more things. And as more missions develop, uh, we'll need to make more rules. Is there common understanding that Crescent satellites will be the way people communicate? It'll be one of the ways. I I think it'll be one of the ways. I think NASA and other governments, like you mentioned, will have their own uh, government systems. But there's a really important role for commercial systems as well, because those government systems have to be used for the really uh, critical government missions. And then there's a lot of other science that can be done and a lot of other development and and commerce that will need a commercial network. Fascinating. Do you imagine someday there will actually be towers built on the moon? Yeah, I think so. Communication towers. Yeah, I think that it might look a little different from what's on Earth. So when uh, you land a rover on the moon, uh, those rovers or those landers... Uh, might have a little communications antenna on it that connects to our network, our Parsec network. And that will be the first tower, so to speak, on the moon. I understand you're hoping to have this ready by 2025 when NASA's Artemis Three is scheduled to land at the South Pole with a crew. So help me understand the relationship here. NASA is basically contracting out for its, you know, lack of a better term, phone system. Mm-hmm. 
You're, right. you're coordinating with them, but then you're also beyond NASA to some extent too. Right. And, and if we look at how NASA has done a lot of the um, space exploration efforts recently, it's uh, in a commercial way. So the government and NASA is still the customer, but they're not the only customer. Uh-huh. So there are other national space agencies and other commercial companies that are performing missions on the moon that can use our network. So that way NASA doesn't bear the full cost or, or, of the system. And we can build a commercial network to help the uh, really kickstart the lunar economy. Uh, let's talk for a moment about the South Pole mm-hmm. and why that spot is particularly important. Are there resources there? Yeah, we, we know that there's water and other resources there. And uh, that is really the focus of NASA's scientific exploration is the South Pole uh, so that we can start to understand where those resources are, water in particular. Maybe harness them so that the mission can continue. That's right. Yeah. So water you can use to sustain human life, but you can also use that water to create fuel uh, to launch things off of the moon, for instance. Are those satellites similar to ones that we launch for Earth? Are they adapted somehow? Yes, uh, they're, they're similar in that they will receive and transmit communication signals, but they are, there are some special requirements to go outside of Earth orbit. So the, the environment in space is a lot harsher at the moon than it is relatively protected when you're just around the Earth. So they are a little bit different, but these... Is, is that just an atmospheric question? No, it's more like radiation. Radiation, In space, yeah. the deeper you get into space, the more uh, radiation you're, you're exposed to. Okay. And other like uh, meteorites or other types of um, hazards... Uh, are a little bit uh, more challenging to deal with out at the moon. So you've got special plates on this, uh, armor, they're just hardier. I mean, yeah, a little bit hardier, and the electronics have to be a little different than if you're close to the Earth because they have to withstand uh, more radiation exposure. How does the satellite, how do this, the satellites, because it's a pair of them, uh, how do they get placed so we'll launch our Parsec satellites along with other missions that are also going to the moon. So there'll be, you know, it's, it's essentially like a bus that leaves to the moon. And yeah, with payloads. Everybody, all the payloads hop on and we go out to the moon. And then our satellites get themselves into the right orbit around the moon and then set up and start uh, uh, sending signals back to Earth. But they get in place from where? From the craft that's bringing them mm-hmm. there? Or they are brought to the surface of the moon and then somehow... So our, our satellites will be orbiting the moon. So they'll be sent in a, on a trajectory towards the moon. And then the, the Parsec satellites have little engines, little um, rocket engines on them so that they can then slow down and get into and the get right, right orbit. right into place. That's right, yeah. Joe, before we go, to what extent does lunar research today depend on those initial lunar missions, like the one small step? Is that still history, science, data, information you harness for something decades later? Yeah, really the the exploration and development of the moon really builds on previous uh, missions. So even the Apollo missions, we're still learning new information from those missions and using that to help develop better uh, missions for the future. Wait, you're still learning from Apollo? Yeah, absolutely. How, how, what data does that provide? Well, sometimes we have new types of instruments or new types, of, or just new questions that we want to ask. So we can go back to that original data and help to shape the, the future missions. Mind blown. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Joe Landon is CEO of Crescent Space Services, a new subsidiary of Lockheed Martin Space in Colorado. The firm's developing a communication system for the moon. We spoke in May. And that 
that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to a team that's always ready for a giant leap. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.